The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 19 has taken us into the trial of Jesus before Pilate. We looked at that last time. Pilate's frustration in getting Jesus to admit things about being a king. The crowd calling for Jesus to be crucified. The temple leaders putting pressure on. Pilate beginning to buckle under some tension and even fear at the idea that Jesus might be someone who originated from another world, as he asks him, where are you from? He didn't mean, what's your local address? He meant, where did you come from? And now we pick this up in verse 12 of chapter 19, John 19, 12. I'll read through verse 22 as we now are going to see the the narrative move to the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Listen to God's word. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour, And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where he was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. May God bless his word as we consider it this morning. The name of Pontius Pilate is the only human being besides Jesus whose name occurs in the Apostles' Creed. Did you ever think about that? There are no other human beings named in that creed of the church that has been said by Christians for many centuries. And therefore, some might wonder, why in the world would Christian believers repeat 
year after year, week after week, in various worship services, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was an agnostic and really relatively obscure Roman ruler. Well, I think we do it, first of all, because Pilate pinpoints for us the death of Christ on a historical timeline. It's telling us that the cross and all the events around it were not a myth or a legend, not a made-up story. It happened in real history under the rule of a particular man who can be identified through Roman state record-keeping. There's no doubt about that. But another thing the name of Pilate does for us is to illustrate the tragedy of our human condition, the kind of person for whom Jesus actually was dying, a person who knew what was right, what should have been done, but did intentionally what was wrong, a man who was backed by a lot of power, the Roman state, a whole system of laws that, that worked towards justice and tried to work out what was right for human beings and what was fair, and yet he violated that whole system, and his personal conscience was shown to have no real connection to his public deeds. Here at the bottom line was a man who worshipped his own career. There are a lot of pilots around today who worship their own career. He could be called in some eyes a great man, but he was not really a great man because he had no enduring high principles within him and he did not worship or bow in any fashion before a true God ruling above him. It's been said many times in different voices in the past that Nations tend to get the leaders they deserve. If nations have spineless or weak leaders, they should ask themselves, what is it in all of us that produces this individual as supposedly one of the best that can be elected or appointed? We can certainly say that rulers like Pilate, and I am not naming individuals nor even necessarily thinking of individuals, but certainly our nation, the United States of America, has had rulers throughout its whole history and down to the present day, rulers who hold office of some kind or other that are like Pilate. We ought to be deeply in prayer in an election year that God might spare us from a ruler like Pilate. Before I go further into John 19, I want to just take a moment for a brief sidetrack to point out a few things that John is unique in his telling of the events at the cross. Each of the Gospels is unique that way. There are things they tell in common. They tell one story, certainly. But each one pointed out certain things, and John was the last to be written He was also the only one physically present at the cross, so the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had to get their reports of what happened from somebody else. John was there. Here's a few of the things that John mentions that the others do not mention, and we think that's intentional. He was saying, well, here are some things the others have not told you about. His gospel is the only one that mentions Pilate winning the argument about what was written on the signboard. His gospel is the only one, and we didn't read that yet, but 
that tells of the mother of Jesus being committed into the care of John, Jesus from the cross, saying, John, here's your mother. Take care of her. Only John reports the words that probably were not spoken perhaps all that loudly, and he was there to hear them. I thirst, and it is finished. Only John tells of the soldier's spear thrust into the body of Jesus after he was dead. Just interesting to see how John fills out the story for us. Now, it seems, and it it comes out, I believe, in this passage as well as the other Gospels, that you could say, if you believed in crystal balls, and I hope you don't, but using a crystal ball as a mere figure of speech, the cross of Jesus Christ acts as a kind of crystal ball revealing things about any person who gets very close to it. It's almost as if we suddenly look inside this person and see their real character and understand what they are, not what they're posing to be or wanting us to think they are, but what they really are. The hidden depths of human character rise to the surface when people get close to the cross of Jesus. That was true for two crucified thieves who are mentioned here, one on either side, and you know it's not told here, but other gospels tell us very different men. One of them humble, repentant. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The other one scoffing and scorning right up to the hour of his own death. There was a Roman centurion there, the other gospels tell. Amazingly, a battle-hardened Roman centurion who stood back and looked upon the whole thing and said, surely this man was the Son of God. So the cross tends to reveal who we are Maybe you and I ought to be careful and understand that when we get close to the cross, when we ponder it and consider it and think of our responsibility for it having to happen, it's going to expose the truth about who we are. Now, as we take back some layers of meaning here in John 19, first of all, I want you to notice in verses 12 to 16, and I'm saying that what we have here is Pilate checkmated at his own game. If I could be granted personal wishes to obtain skills or traits of my char- my, either my character or abilities that I, mostly I'm thinking of abilities that I don't possess, one ability I would love to have, and I don't even have an inkling of it, is to be able to sit down at that piano and play songs by ear for my own enjoyment. Can't do it. Strange one that you might not think about me, but I always have admired the game of chess. I learned to play when I was young. I have played with some friends, especially when I was a teenager. And I always thought, wow, it would be great to really be good at chess. I don't don't have to be a grandmaster able to beat everybody in the world, but just to be able to to play and and do what real chess players can do, thinking four, five, six moves ahead. I'm I'm never more than two ahead. My mind just doesn't work that way. Ten-year-olds wipe me out in chess. Boris Spassky is not going to tremble in his grave when, I, when he thinks of me as a chess player. But here's Pilate, who was a, he probably played chess. Maybe he really played it, I don't know. But he was good at it in the political sense, political chess. He watched the Jewish temple leaders move a knight, and he moved his bishop, and they advanced a pawn, and he captured that pawn, and so on. And boy, when negotiating deals or, or maneuvering through arguments, Pilate didn't lose very often. And yet we watch him lose here. 
If you play chess, you know that terrible moment of discovery when your opponent says, checkmate. If your opponent is really good, that move that will capture your king might be two or three moves away yet and you don't see it. Or it might well be that he sees it and it's the next move, but you still don't see it. And all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, the king is captured on the next move. Well, Pilate wished for a checkmate move, but instead it came against him. It came against him by the temple leaders bringing into their moves this accusation, you are not Caesar's friend. Pilate was already afraid. We read that he was afraid of Jesus because he thought possibly his superstitious nature, and the Romans were rather superstitious, thought maybe he really is from another world. Where are you from anyway, Jesus? And he feared that. It says in the text he was afraid. We know he feared the crowds outside who were clamoring to see an execution. And now we find out he's afraid of these temple rulers who he could not defeat in his political chess game. They said, if you set Jesus free, you are not Caesar's friend. What they meant exactly was, we can write a report and send it back to Rome where your big boss, Tiberius Caesar, will read it. Whoa. That was a dagger in the heart. Because Pontius Pilate knew that reports had already gone back to Rome about him saying, this guy's a bully, this guy does not respect the Jewish religion, this guy has pulled off cruel measures against uh, many people, he's not to be trusted, and so on and so on. And Tiberius was known, you can check this out if you want to study Roman history, he was known as a very suspicious emperor. He had his spies everywhere. That's how he kept people under control because they knew they wouldn't get away with much under his reign. Pilate knew that. And as soon as someone said, a report is going to Tiberius, the game was over. He had lost. You see, here was a governor who had never learned the lesson that I hope some of you have learned, and I hope more will learn if you haven't, that you can do almost anything in this world once you begin to fear God more than you fear people. The fear of people is a snare. The fear of man, the Bible calls it. I've lived long enough to see there really are very few things that man can do to you that ultimately are harmful. Well, you say, they could kill me. Sure, terrorists can come along and shoot you down. A robber on the street can kill you. But a Christian knows that physical death isn't the ultimate threat. We know that we need to fear our sovereign God and reverence Him and be in awe of Him. And when He is our leader and our captain and our commander and our king, there really isn't anything significant that can happen to us to ultimately, eternally harm us. But Pilate didn't know that. Well, you see the weakness of Pilate, but you need to also see the weakness of those who outfoxed him, the temple leaders. They seemed like they won the chess match, so maybe they're the invincible leaders here. Well, in order to win, look what they had to do. And I want you to consider what it meant. They had to say, we have no king but Caesar. Now, maybe you say, big deal. 
Well, it is a big deal. I can assure you. Think about it for a minute. Who were these people? These were the highest religious representatives of the exclusive worship of Israel, the Old Testament Israel, people of God, chosen people, drawn out by God, selected for his good pleasure to be a sample nation of what it meant to worship the true God and obey him. The leaders of that nation, the heirs of the covenant, the heirs of the leadership of Moses, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, these people make themselves absolutely ludicrous when they say, we don't serve any king except Caesar. Can you get that? The people who are supposed to be saying to the world, we don't serve any king but Jehovah God. For centuries, that was their task, to maintain what God called the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. Walk with me. Obey me. They chose instead of the unseen God, Jehovah, a man named Tiberius living off in Rome, a suspicious, conniving Roman emperor, and they said, we serve no king but Caesar. I wonder how they got those words out of their mouth. If I had been them, I would have thought, I'm going to fall over dead if I say that. I'm a leader of Israel. I am supposed to be telling these people, look for God's Messiah, worship him. Now here I am saying, kill God's Messiah because we don't have any king except the one who serves in Rome. Amazing that they weren't struck by lightning on the spot. You see, what we have here is a a total breakdown of real leadership. The leadership of Pilate on one hand, the leadership of the temple authorities on the other hand. It was an amazing thing. You can call it a coincidence if you want. I thought it was pretty amazing as I ate breakfast on Friday morning and perused the Lancaster newspaper just prior to coming in here and working on this sermon most of the day. I saw the bold headline of the Lancaster newspaper that maybe some of you remember what it said on Friday. It was unusually big and unusually bold. It was only two letters It said, wanted, leader. Now that was about a local crisis, of course. A township school board, I have no comment to make on that. It's not relevant to what we're talking about. But the headline was, wanted, leader. I saw that and considered the text I knew I was working on and thought to myself, Lord, that's like a billboard that's posted all along the highways of American society today. In our families, wanted moms and dads to be leaders, not children to lead their moms and dads as we see so much of today. On this Valentine's Day, it said, wanted husbands to be spiritual leaders with strength and compassion who will cherish their wives. In our government, whether the state house or the state legislatures or our courts, wanted leader. Surely you know the news from yesterday that we have lost a valued justice of the Supreme Court deserving of honor, and I do not mind giving him honor. It's not a political act. Antonin Scalia honored the law and sought to bow a life before God that would honor the law. 
Yes, he was a conservative. Yes, his death changes the court of the United States, and that is a very deeply significant thing, equally as significant as who we elect as the next president. Wanted. Leader. A leader who has some steel in his backbone. A leader who can take his convictions and carry them forward and stand alone if he needs to or she needs to. Wanted. People who know there is an authority above them to whom they must bow. God, their creator, and Jesus Christ, their Lord. And we ought to be asking through our prayers and our ballots. It's South Carolina's turn soon, but it will be our turn. Are there people who can be a biblical leader for this nation? I'm not ready to propose the candidate. You have to make that decision. Wanted leader. As a second main point today, I'd have you look at the latter part of what I read, verses 17 to 22. Because here we see a so-called leader's final verdict, Pilate's final verdict about Christ. Very quietly, the text tells you of Pilate's surrender. Verse 16 doesn't say, you know, he made a big decision or he made a great announcement. After he heard, we have no king but Caesar, it says simply, he delivered him over to be crucified. That half verse is the announcement of the most momentous event in human history. Jesus turned over to be killed for the sins of leaders who weren't leaders and for the sins of myself and of you as well. And so we read, they took Jesus. He went out bearing his own cross. That probably was the horizontal beam only of the cross, which he carried to a place called the skull. We don't know why it was named that. It must have been a stone that somehow reminded people of a skull. That's all we can think. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus in the middle. And our interest is then what Pilate wrote about this. You know, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. I believe the Greeks did. The Carthaginians were pretty good at it also. They passed it on and it got refined and ways were found to make it even more cruel and ways to prolong the life of the sufferer. But one of the things the Romans did was to make sure that the general public would learn a lesson from crucifixion and they thought, why not get the charge for which the person was being executed out there so the whole public could see it and be warned by it. Makes sense. In this case, it says they fastened it to the cross, probably right above Jesus' head, a sign of some type on a piece of wood. Sometimes they hung it on a cord around the victim's neck. But at least everybody who would pass within sight who could read, would see why the person was being killed. It would serve a moral lesson. And so we see what Pilate did here. He was haughty to the end. He had lost the chess match, but he was going to get in the last stroke against these Jewish leaders, even though he had lost. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The word came back to them. They sent word out. You can see messengers running back and forth or something. Don't say the king of the Jews, say he claimed to be. And only in John does it report, Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. That's my last word. And, you know, it's amazing that what he wrote was a great truth. 
because Jesus truly was the great king of all time, and his proper throne was his cross. It was the place from which he accomplished with authority the thing he had come to do. I always teach the new members class when we learn about one of the lessons we talk about, well, what what is it that makes us Christians in the first place? I say, well, do you know the simplest and easiest Christian creed? It's only a few words. It is, Jesus Christ is Lord. If you've been in the new members class, you remember, remember that. Jesus Christ is Lord. What did the tit- By the way, that signboard was called the titulus in Roman words, in Latin. What did the titulus say? Why, it said, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the king. In other words, that titulus above his head said exactly what a Christian has to believe. That Jesus Christ is the only and highest king. Thank you, Pilate. You're a preacher of the gospel and you didn't even know it. You're not even a believer. You're not even ordained to be a ruling elder or a deacon or a teaching elder. You're an unbelieving atheist, basically. But you preach the gospel by putting that sign above the head of Jesus. You did a better job than Wycliffe Bible translators could possibly do of publishing in three languages what is true. By the way, the commentaries make much out of the three languages. Aramaic is a form of Hebrew. It's kind of like everyday Hebrew, not formal Hebrew, but street Hebrew. It's the language Jesus spoke on a daily basis. And that was, of course, then a language that would communicate to the Jew. Latin, of course, was the Roman language. It would communicate to the Romans and and those who dealt in law and things like that and military affairs. They would understand what was being said. And Greek was the broadest appealing language of all there. Greek was sort of like what English is today, the language spoken in many, many nations as a, as a universal language, a language of business and the arts and trade and philosophy. So in other words, it was published no matter what you read, no matter what you speak, you could understand. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Thank you, Pilate, for that little trilingual declaration that told us who and what Jesus was and what he was guilty of. He was guilty of being God's appointed king, and they killed him for it. But that was the very thing that we would profess about him that brings us under his rule and into his kingdom. Do you realize the Bible says there'll be a future day when Christ returns? Many teachings about that in many different slants and angles of the Bible. We won't go into what it teaches, but... It says Christ is returning to end history. And it implies and says in different ways that when he comes, people are going to recognize him instantly for who and what he is, but it's going to be too late to make the proper declaration or confession about him if you haven't made it before. Philippians 2 says, At the end of time, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Sounds like everybody must be saved. Well, you better read a few other texts that will tell you that many of those tongues are professing something that comes out of them like it was strangled, not something that they willingly profess. Every tongue will profess what was written on the cross above the head of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the King to the glory 
of God the Father. Many of us will confess it with a thrilled shout of joy, joy that can't be described. And others are going to almost scream it as a cry of despair. Don't tell me that he really is the Lord and I neglected it all this time. That's going to be the case for many. Let me wrap it up this way. I heard someone not too long ago speak about a particular cause which they were mildly defending and willing to support, but they also wanted to qualify the fact that they were not deeply committed to it. They wouldn't die for it, and they used a phrase, I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, that's not a hill I choose to die upon. I thought that was interesting to be reminded of that phrase. Not a hill I would die upon. Well, Jesus chose the hill he died upon. In fact, his father chose it. His father appointed him to go there and give up his life. There were things that Jesus would die for, and you are among them if you're a believer, if you know him, if you're one of those whom he has set his love and claimed your heart and changed your mind. Can it be said of you then? that there is a hill upon you which you would choose to die? Is there a cause for which you would lay down your very life? Are there principles for which you would forsake perhaps some element of your career or your popularity or something of that nature? And not only have you professed that, Oh, yes, I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I've given my heart and mind to him way back when I was a child, many people would say. But I would ask you then, is there sufficient evidence in your subsequent life that proves from the day-by-day choices you make and the character you bear and the way you behave and the compassion you show to other people and the mercy you minister to other people that that profession really is a hill that the old you has died upon and the new you has stepped forward as a habitation for the Holy Spirit of Christ. I say to you, every man and woman is right now doing what Pontius Pilate did. We are writing a permanent verdict about ourselves. We are engraving a message for eternity that God God beholds what's written there right now. There's still time to change it, perhaps, but he knows what you've written right now about your life. Is Jesus your king? Does the evidence hold up to prove it? Is it a message that you're willing to go before God one day and say, God, my judge, what I have written, I have written? Can you give a reason why? you would not hail Jesus Christ who was crucified and risen for you as the King of glory to be recognized by yourself as the Son of God and King of the universe. Can you give a reason? Do you think he's a failure? Do you think he was a phony? Maybe you wouldn't come right out and say that, but maybe that's what your life implies. In the words of Hebrews 13, I give you this challenge. There the writer says, Jesus suffered outside the city gate, outside the center of popularity. He was in exile, in other words. He suffered outside the city gate in order to make a people clean by his blood. 
Therefore, the text summons us, Hebrews 13, 12, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured, for here we have no enduring city. Let us choose the hill to die upon where Jesus died. Let us say, I need to give up my old nature, my old man, my old woman, and become something new by the making of God through his grace, by his Son and Holy Spirit. Let me go outside the camp of popular opinion. Let me go apart from places where people dare to reconstruct 20 or 30 centuries of human history and understanding of the law of God and say, no, now we will recreate the institution of marriage. Let me go outside the camp where people speak such folly and die on the hill where Christ died and call him and no other my Lord, my King, my God. I pray you will know what hill you need to die upon for the glory of God. Our Father, what an amazing thing we see that took place in the cross. In the eyes of Pilate, it was a nuisance to his mourning, something he would rather not have dealt with, an embarrassment, a political loss, but probably forgotten two or three days later. How amazing. This great one-time, once-for-all event that changed the entire history of the world, that was able to change eternity for men and women, was done and then gone in the eyes of some people who witnessed it. The cross amazes us. May it amaze us enough to know that we need to die on that hill. Give up ourselves. Bow to this king. And say, I, Lord, will claim that gift of life that you died to give, of forgiveness, of a new nature, of a new hope. Please, for Jesus' sake, may I have it too. Amen.